Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, June 30th, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled Hard Things, a testimony about addiction and loss. tried let's see Aaron's going to try to get our live stream going I know that some people aren't uh, able to be here so um, we're going to str- we're going to struggle through tonight we'll see if we can if we can get it to work um, we all good Aaron awesome um, I want to tell you guys a story so uh, Aaron if you would throw that first slide up for me So this is my brother Stephen. He uh, he is eighteen months younger than me. And God, this is I'm trying. I'm serious. I'm not. I'm gonna try not to be a ball fest because I know that's gonna be super weird for some of you guys. So I'm gonna try not to do that. Um, my brother's eighteen months younger than me, and um, we've been together my whole life which is pretty awesome, right? So, um, so Stephen started, uh, at, so we're from a big family, you guys know that, there's, there's eight of us. Um, I'm number four, Stephen's number five. Um, there's there's uh, us older five are roughly a, two years to 18 months apart, and then there's a seven-year gap. My mom had two miscarriages, and um, the Lord redeemed her womb, and in, in medical impossibility, she had three more children. And God remembered her prayers, and she had lost three babies, and God gave her three babies. And so there's a seven-year gap between Stephen and my next brother, Josiah. And so, um, grow up, homeschool family, right? Um, we were the, we were the, the cookie-cutter, you know, denim skirt-wearing, polo tucked in, khaki-wearing, homeschool family. We were it, man. My sister had the bangs. yeah. I'm still fighting the comb over. It's still it's still a thing. Um, but uh, we we had a great childhood growing up. My my dad's a, is an accountant. He he's a, has his own practice and worked really hard uh, to put food on the table for us. And um, we had a great childhood. Stephen and I did a lot of crazy stuff. We this actually this picture was taken. My mom we were on vacation in Virginia, and Stephen and I got a hold of my mom's camera not digital camera, like actual film camera, and we just started taking random pictures in the Toys R Us parking lot. I don't know why we were there, but we were just making the most of it. So this is a representation of basically my life with Steven. He's pre- he was pretty awesome. And um, so uh, he and I were paired together. It's easier with, with homeschool kids if you're paired together with your sibling. And so uh, I finished high school. I'm, a, I'm the youngest in my class. Uh, I, my birthday's in August, so... I finished high school at 17. Stephen finished high school at 15 with me. And uh, we sat for the ACT the first time, right when I was a senior in high school, thinking, okay, all my friends. This, so this will tell you how, how ridiculous this was. So I took, we took the ACT together, which I'm confident to this day, the ACT is a terrible metric for intelligence. Okay? Can I get an amen from all the creative people in the room? Right? So we sit for the ACT 
I am not thinking about school. I'm not thinking about college. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm thinking about this woman right here uh, who was soon to be my wife. Um, and so I sit for the ACT, and I have a very hard time taking a standardized test, extremely hard time. Like, I can hear the clock doing a tap dance on the wall over here, right? Literally has a cane and a top hat, right? Uh, so the first time I took the ACT, I scored a 15. No shame. Steven, on the other hand, Mr. Excellence, scores a 27 at 15 years old. It took me three tries and a private tutor to get up to a 21. I'm not kidding you. Yeah, I was like, I thought that there was something wrong with me. I'm not going to lie to you. I really thought there was something wrong with me. But Stephen, stupid smart, okay? So he, finished, he finishes high school. He waits a year. At 16, he enrolls for concurrent classes at University of Tulsa. Um, there he goes on a double major and get two degrees in accounting and finance. Stupid smart. And um, so he began uh, to do life at, at University of Tulsa, doing his thing, and um, got involved in a fraternity, started to develop some friendships, and uh, began to find his validation in other things besides God's Word and God's community. And so, um, sure enough, uh, friends got older, they graduated, they got married and moved on, and... Um, Satan had begun to tell Stephen that he wasn't worth anything. And so he began to um, drive himself further and further into that direction of trying to um, make things less painful for himself. And um, he, told, he told me once, he said, if God is everywhere, why is he so damn hard to find? And um, broke my heart. It did. And so, uh, about five years ago, uh, things started getting really bad, and he um, just began to make decisions that began to isolate himself from other people, and, and um, he began to, his buddies didn't really want to drink anymore, and so he just kind of did his own thing. And uh, at first, I was angry. Um, you guys know that, that I've had a history of, of that kind of thing in my past as well. And, um, but, but God had, had begun to humble me quite a bit. And I want to I show you something real quick. So we've talked about this a little bit before, but I want to show you real quick the, how Romans, it talks about how the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. And I want to show you this. Uh, we think that human beings, well, at least those that have been brought up in the church, they think that, okay, well, the wages of sin is death. That means that I'm going to go to hell if I sin. And I need Jesus to save me from hell, right? Okay, so what, what's after that? How can someone who has made a profession to follow Jesus end their life the way that my brother did? How can somebody who has walked with Jesus their whole life, like a pastor, uh, cheat on his spouse and leave her for someone else? How can... How can someone be addicted to painkillers and leave their family after 30 years of marriage? You know, how, is, how does that happen? I want you to look at something. So we forget whose image are we made in, made in? God's image, right? Okay, so God is three parts. God is made up of three parts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So it bears to reason that we also are made in three parts as well. 
right? So, if, so let's talk about these three parts. So the first thing I want you to see is we have a body, right? You will always be a physical being. There will never be a time in the rest of, of, of time you will cease to be what you are. God made you flesh, you will be flesh. That means that after this world is over, after Jesus comes back, after everything is called into judgment, you will still have a body. God doesn't undo things the way that he did them. So that's why it says that Jesus is the first, the first one to rise again. He's the first fruits. We're the first fruits of his creation to be redeemed. Okay, so how does sin kill your body? Let's talk about this for a second. So here's a couple of things. First thing is if physical death. So you will physically die one day because of sin, because it corrupts you. Okay? It also can lead to addiction. Let me explain that for a second. So if you make decisions, you program your body to act certain ways chemically. You can become chemically dependent on anything. You can become chemically dependent on food. You can become chemically dependent on alcohol, on relationships, on, on uh, drugs. You can become chemically dependent on depression. Your brain can get reprogrammed to certain lifestyles. Sin corrupts your mind physiologically. It can manifest itself in addiction. Now, since we live in a broken world, some people are born with a broken mind. Sometimes that bends them towards violence. Sometimes that bends them towards um, not being able to do certain intellectual things. But mental illnesses and physical uh, incapacities, that is part of our bodies being broken. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, next I want you to see that we also, not only we have a body, but also we have a soul. Okay, so your soul is made up of three parts. Go ahead and throw that up there, Aaron. Now, how does sin corrupt your soul? Okay, so these three parts are your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay, so uh, go ahead and go to the next one, Aaron. There you go, right there. So the effects of sin on the soul. Number one, your mind, the decisions that you make. So sin begins to corrupt how you process information. Because you are, in the Garden of Eden, it says that, that once Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to hide themselves from God. Well, that shame we carry with us today. So that shame manifests itself in a couple of different ways. It can manifest itself in pride, where we bow up when people try to challenge us where we shrink back down, we're afraid because we don't want anybody to hurt us any more than, we are, or than we've already been hurt. And so what happens is sin begins to compromise how we make decisions. Oh, I'm not going to go to reach tonight because my friends aren't going to be there or my BFF's not going to be there or whatever. You fill in the reason why. You make decisions based on sin. Sin bends your decision-making process. The next thing it does is it changes your will, your priorities. This is why someone who, so say for instance, so you've been having a, long, a really hard period at work, all right? And so you've gotten used to, you know what, when I get home, just had a, this was really had a tough season, really stressful, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and have a, I'm going to have a rum and coke before I go to bed. Kind of take the edge off. I'm just going to kind of relax a little bit. Maybe it's not rum and coke. Maybe it's I cannot wait home to eat that frozen, I can't wait to get home so I can eat that frozen pizza, right? I just want to sit on the couch. I just want to veg. I just want to unplug, whatever. Okay? It doesn't matter. Different colored bullets go in the same gun. Okay? So what happens is it changes your priorities. It changes your priorities. So now all of a sudden when you're driving home, instead of saying, I cannot wait to get in God's word or take this to the Lord, you begin to change your priorities. 
So now all of a sudden it's changing your decisions, but it's also changing your mind before you even get to the decisions. Okay, then sin corrupts your emotions, how you feel about the priorities that you have and the decisions that you make. Okay, what I'm trying to show you is that sin has a way of corrupting us comprehensively in all parts of our nature. Okay, so the final thing is, what is the thing that we're the most familiar with, our spirit. Okay, sin corrupts our spirit. Your spirit is your eternal identity. This is your personality. There may be another person on this planet that looks just like you with a mullet and a sick mustache, but that person is not Jonathan Peterson. Right? No, there's not. No, there's not. You are unique. Right? Your spirit is unique. Although you may have similar physical characteristics, you are unique. As Harry Layden would say, you're made on purpose for a purpose. Right? So sin kills your spirit through your eternal destination, right? This is your eternal identity. This is what we know as heaven and hell. Sin corrupts us in our eternal being. So i got to lay all that groundwork out there. So how can someone who professes to know Jesus and make a profession of faith at seven, eight years old, grow up in the church, know all the church answers, and still fall to pray to this? Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Galatians 5. I know that there's, there's a, we're going to try to cover a lot of Scripture here, but I'm going to try to cram the last 10 years of my life into 30 minutes. Okay, so bear with me. I'm sorry if I go fast and if I repeat myself. I'm trying my best not to be a mess up here. So Galatians 5, remember Galatians is the, book where, is the letter that, that Paul wrote to the, the, the church in Galatia, and they're having all kinds of problems, and he's talking about how this, this conflict between our spirit and our flesh, they go, it goes back and forth, right? It pulls back and forth with each other. So check this out. So Galatians 5, it says, we're going to read this in context. See, so he says, I say then, walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires against the spirit and the spirit desires against the flesh. These are contrary to each other so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, hold on a second. He's saying, He's saying, if you follow the Spirit, all these other things, the consequences of what you do, you can't be found guilty of these things. What Satan tries to do is he tries to tell you, oh, nope, see, you messed up. You've you got to go back to square one. But that's not how this works. Okay, check this out. So verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand that just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, we've talked about before that sin is not about the things that you do. Sin is about control. These are things that highlight a life that is trying to live according to the flesh. Okay, this is not talking about salvation. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about a lifestyle. It's talking about the, these other two things, our body and our soul. Okay, this has nothing to do with the spirit, body and soul. Okay, so this is about a lifestyle. Verse 22, now he says, but the fruit of the spirit. So this is, this is the product of living in a, in a life that is driven by the Holy Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, why would he say that? Let's not become conceited, self-righteous. Let's not become to where we think that we're better than somebody else because we don't do as many things as they do in this list. This isn't a list. This is just a general observation of life. Now, here's the thing that we miss. We talk about the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit, but there's a connecting passage here before we get into the rest of chapter 6. Now, check this out. Brothers, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, but not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Here's what he's saying. Look, here's the evidence of a lifestyle that's driven by control, the flesh. And here's, here's the evidence of a life that's driven by the Spirit. Now, before we get into comparisons here, if, if you see somebody's getting off track and they're beginning to move this direction, he says, hey, listen, you have a responsibility to go get that person gently and bring them back. But be careful that in the process of trying to bring someone back into a righteous life, that you don't become conceited. He's saying, be careful that you don't puff yourself up and think that you are better than you really are. Then he goes on. Okay, this kind of sums up the whole thing. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. It says, let him, who's, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Check this out. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he sows to his flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption or death. But he, sows, uh, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. My brother got wrapped around the axle. He was the dog that caught the car. And slowly, incrementally, he began to develop a lifestyle that eventually he could not escape. He was chemically dependent on alcohol. And what God began to show me through these chapters in Galatians 5 and 6 is that everyone is susceptible. Everyone is. You can't, you can't just trust Jesus and think, okay, well, yeah, I've got my ticket punched, so I'm just going to live however I want. That's not how this works. You've got to understand that we don't do certain things not because we're better than other people, but we, do, we don't do them because we understand that they're dangerous. Is it wrong for you to go and have a, have a glass of wine with dinner? Absolutely not. There's nothing in God's Word that tells me that that's, that that's wrong. However, if that becomes the thing that you draw to to make yourself settled, now we have a problem. This is, my, this is just my observations, okay? So we can be corrupted. See, we think that fruit is just an indication of life, but it's not. Fruit also bears the power to reproduce itself. You take one apple, you plant it in the ground, guess what? You get an apple tree that can produce tens of thousands of apples. Now you have the potential to create tens of thousands of trees, which can produce hundreds of thousands of apples. You see how it exponentially grows? So you develop a lifestyle that's reckless, and guess what? 
you will bear reckless fruit. And before you know it, it's like a locomotive that gains steam. It gains power. Next thing you know, it takes an inordinate amount of, of will and discipline to break it. These, these chapters in God's Word tell me that if your body is broken, there is nothing ungodly about you taking medication to fix the broken physiological things in your mind. Okay? So, what happens when someone gets trapped with their sin? Why would God let this happen? Okay, let's, let's check out who God is. Turn over to James chapter 1. You guys remember this. James chapter 1. If my fingers will work. Why would God let this happen? James chapter 1. Check this out. Verse 13, starting in verse 13, says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives, gives forth, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so based on what happened to my brother, based on what's happened to me in my past, is it God's fault? Absolutely not. Every man is drawn away when he's pulled away by his own lust and enticed. And then sin, when it's finished, gives birth to death and its final completion. It doesn't change anything about God's characteristics. So while all of this garbage is going on, has God changed? Absolutely not. Okay, check this out. Flip over to Lamentations chapter 3. I know I'm going all over the place. Lamentations chapter 3. It's right after Jeremiah. Okay, check this out. So Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. It says... Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. It's starting in verse 19, verse 20. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Though the Lord, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. God is good. I remember all the crap that I've had to deal with, but that doesn't change who God is. God is good. He goes on, verse 25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Skip down to verse 31. It says this, it says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, though He causes grief. Yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. So think about this. In spite of all of this stuff that happens, in spite of, in spite of all the ways that, that we get caught up, God is still good. God still anxiously waits for us to come back to him.
So my brother, in the fall of 2018, um, it got to the point to where uh, he really couldn't be around my kids. I really didn't think that it felt... I, I never feared for their safety, but um, it just wasn't a good representation. So here's what I tell you. Here's what I want to tell you about the hard things in your life. Is that there will be times when you will stray away from God. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. We had this giant conversation. See, my problem, or one of my issues was that um, since I was so close to him, I was the one that all of his girlfriends would call when they had a problem. And so that was the solution. Well, I'll just call Philip because he's, he's, he's Stephen's rudder. I'm going to call Philip. I'm just going to call Philip. So finally, um, in the fall of 2018, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And I gave him an ultimatum. I said, look, you get to decide if you want me in your life or not. And he made a decision. He used to come over to our house every Friday night for game night. He would bring food, and we would, we would have dinner, and we'd play board games. He loved the game Munchkins. That's his favorite, was his favorite game, play with the girls. And the Lord began to teach me some things as I was separated from him. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. I have heard this, this parable a million times, but I've never, I never saw these words until I read it on January 5th, 2018. I have it marked in my Bible with Stephen's name right beside it. Remember, God is good. This is familiar to you, starting in verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one who is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine who did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I want to draw your attention to that first verse. It says, Take heed that you do not despise or dismiss one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? It says that while my brother was wandering away from Jesus, there were angels in heaven praying for him. It says, don't you dismiss these lost sheep because they're still my sheep. The Holy Spirit reached down from heaven and he pricked my heart and he said, you don't get to decide who's worthy anymore. Your brother is still mine. And I want to tell you that no matter where you go, no matter how far you wander away from Jesus, he still dwells on you. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit... It, he prays for us to Jesus. Jesus advocates for us from the, at the throne of, of the Father. And this passage right here, Jesus' own words, they're red and white. It says that there are angels in heaven advocating for you. When you feel like you don't have everything figured out, they're advocating for you. When you are lost in sin, they're advocating for you. When you feel like you don't belong, they are advocating for you. Just like we can't grow conceited, we have to remember that that lost sheep over there, one day, they're going to come back. And God forbid that I am the one that 
prolongs that process because I'm an arrogant fool. God began to crush my heart. Because I had despised my brother. But how do we see these things for the truth, for the way that they really are? What hope do we have besides some theological promise that some pastor has said somewhere? Well, guess what? Every single one of these things is in this book. I cannot tell you how many hours of desperation I have looked in this book. And there is truth there. If you don't believe me, turn over to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, it says this. Starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, my brothers... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My brother was not my enemy. But what do we wrestle against? Verse 12, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places. Because of these things, therefore... Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to quench out all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication, for we are all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is saying, look, we aren't fighting other people. We're not, we're not white people fighting black people. We're not red people fighting blue people. We are people. Satan is having a heyday right now, especially in Tulsa. There is so much hate in this world. God's people are not defined by who they hate. God's people are defined by who they love and how they love. My brother was not the problem. I wasn't the problem. There was an invisible world crushing him from every side. When we see people that we are crossways with, we've got to understand that there are more powers at play than just our own emotions. My brother was being crushed by the enemy. One lie at a time. One arrow at a time. He says, above all, take faith. Faith is confidence that God is who he says he is. I want to show you something. My brother, I've been watching him die for two years. But I told some of you this last week. I, uh, I've heard that grief comes in waves. 
but I've realized that that's actually an unbiblical viewpoint. It doesn't come in waves. Fear doesn't come in waves. Anger doesn't come in waves. It doesn't. I want to read this to you. Romans chapter 8. Paul's talking about suffering, the collective suffering of the world. Turn on the TV or turn, open up Facebook or whatever, and you're going to see it. This is the perspective that we should have. Romans chapter 8. For I consider that this, this is verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until, together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. He's saying we, we see this when we, when we turn on the news, and it turns our stomach. How many political speeches have you seen in the last several years that just make your stomach turn? How many newscasts do you see? How many Facebook posts? How many memes do you see shared? Just like, ugh. That's what he's talking about. Verse 24, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I'm going to pause right there. He's saying that the baseline is not peace. The baseline is not comfort. The, the groaning, the crud, doesn't come in waves. That's the baseline. That's where we live. Instead, what he says, something else happens. So we're going to pause. Put your finger right there, but, also, but now flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, keep your finger on Romans chapter 8. So he's saying there's a collective churning. Okay, so how do we see this for what it really is? How do we, what's the truth? This is how we should look at the world. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is verse 4. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds with, through Christ Jesus. Think about this for a second. If the baseline is chaos, the baseline is, is birth pains, contractions, and that we are eagerly waiting for God to set everything right, this verse says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, ask God joyfully for help thanking him for the trial. And guess what? He sends peace to guard your heart. That means that the grief doesn't come in waves. That means that the peace comes in waves. And here's what's amazing. Look at what he says, continuing in, in Romans chapter 8. Why would God leave us here to deal with all this crap? Look at these verses. 
Verse 26 of Romans 8, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Why would God leave us here? Because it's not about the destination. So if He sends waves of peace in spite of all the garbage in our life, He does that because He wants to teach us something profound. Check this out. The wages of sin is death, right? What you feel when you are separated from someone that you love is a small, infinitesimal, minute piece of what God feels when He is separated from you because of your sin. Because to be separated from someone that you love is agonizing. He lets that little sliver of grief come because He loves you. And let me tell you why. Because what we feel in the smallest, minute way, Jesus felt in every capacity on the cross. When the father turned his back on his son and he, <laughs> he rejected him, it brought Jesus so much stress that he sweated blood. That grief that you feel, that lostness that you feel, the anguish that you feel, all of the hardship that you feel, the groaning that we collectively feel, all of those things are just small little pieces of what God experiences in every magnitude because He loves you so much that before you said, okay, I'm done doing it my way, He still died for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When I feel grief, I don't feel grief. I feel love. I feel what the Lord gave for me. That's why James says, count it all joy when you experience trials, because the trying of your faith works patience, and eventually it will make you perfect. That's why in Romans 12 that we've been talking about this whole year, make yourself a living sacrifice so that you will know the good and pleasing will of God. Grief that we feel is a gift, and not in some sadistical way. God is trying to get your attention, to shake you out of your comfort. What have I learned from my brother? A lot. Because there was a time when I was this close to where he was. And I want you to know 
no matter how far away he got. The angels in heaven were praying for him. Jesus never stopped loving him. And when the sheep came home, they had a party. I prayed for four things for my brother. I prayed. So if you don't know the effects of alcohol and the end result of that lifestyle, it can end in a couple ways. One common way is if somebody tries to quit drinking, their body has become so accustomed to alcohol that um, they'll go into cardiac arrest and they will have a heart attack and die. Another byproduct is that their brain will eventually start to shut down. And um, so medically, if you are used to drinking a lot of distilled alcohol, you will, on day three, begin to seize, have seizures, uncontrollable seizures. And so to try to mitigate that as people are detoxing, doctors will prescribe them medication that has the same chemical properties as alcohol, so they don't actually seize, but they can come out of it in a controlled way. The problem is you've got to take the meds. If you don't take the meds, you seize. If you seize, you fall and you hit your head. And then you seize again and you fall and hit your head over and over again. My brother had an episode last fall, or last August, that um, he fell and hit his head pretty severely and just never came really back from it. And um, at that time, last August, I began to pray that um, he would be free from his addiction and that he would be healthy and happy. And I prayed that if God was going to take him home, that he would do it quickly and without pain. And if that was to happen, God forbid, he wouldn't hurt anybody else in the process. Stephen had a seizure by himself in his house three weeks ago today. Hit his head and died. He was unconscious when it happened. For him, he fell asleep, woke up in heaven. God answered all four of those prayer requests. I want to encourage you with this. You are going to stray away from God in your life. You will. If you don't choose um, alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever, you're going to choose something. You're going to put something in his spot. It's going to happen. Some of you are asking really hard questions about your life, who you're going to be, what you're going to do. Is what I'm doing okay? Is it not okay? God has not given us a license to sin, but you need to know that God loves you no matter what you do. No matter how corrupted your mind gets, no matter how corrupted your flesh gets, God loves you. And He's waiting to give you real life. Not a, not a postcard, not this, this fake Christian life that everything's plastic and put together. You don't have to pretend like everything's great. But real life. I'm going to tell you that I've, I've spent a lot of time with Jesus over the last three weeks. But the verses that I told you about tonight, the Lord put them in my mind and in my heart decades ago. There is no substitute for reading this book. And I know that it seems super weird and super 
elusive. But if you don't know how to read it, I'll teach you. If you don't know how to study it, I'll teach you. Roy will teach you. Kevin will teach you. Guys, this is as real as you and me in this room right now. Your theology is the most basic thing about you. How you see God is how you're going to see the world. And if you dismiss Him, I'm sorry. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever person sows, that he'll also reap. If he sows under the flesh, he'll of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows under the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due time, we will bear fruit if we don't lose heart. God does not despise his lost sheep. He waits for them to come home. And you know what? As bad as everything was for my brother, as terrible as everything ended, the truth is that none of that changed who God was. God is still good. He is still great. He is still love. Be encouraged tonight that no matter where you are with Jesus, He wants you. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down.